Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the New York Historical Society. I'm Dale Gregory, Vice President for Public Programs, and I'm thrilled to welcome you to our spectacular Robert H. Smith Auditorium. Just to let you know about the exhibitions on view now, uh, Freedom Journey 1965, Photographs of the Selma to Montgomery March by Stephen Summerstein, and Lincoln and the Jews. There are two very interesting exhibitions. Please return if you haven't seen them yet. And I just always like to ask everyone, um, how many members do we have with us in the audience tonight? I put my glasses on for this. Is there anyone who's not a member? So we, we thank you all so much for being members. Um, your support helps us with all these programs that we do. And if there is someone somewhere in this auditorium who's not a member, please join the family. We, we welcome you. And now, just in case you, you are new, this is our public programs brochure. Pick one up outside. You'll see all the wonderful programs to follow. Now, Jim, you can take the brochure. Thank you. Okay. So tonight's program, the quartet orchestrating the Second American Revolution, 1783 to 1789, is part of Bernard and Irene Schwartz's Distinguished, Distinguished Speaker Series, which is the heart of our public programs. And as always, I'd like to thank Mr. Schwartz for his support which has enabled us to invite so many prominent authors and historians to New York Historical. I'd also like to recognize and thank our trustees, who I haven't seen them yet, but they do plan on being with us tonight, Rick Reese, Pam Schaffler, Ira Unschuld, and Carl Mangus, who I do see, and all the Chairman's Council members with us tonight. For all their great work and support, let's give them a hand. Thank you. The program will last an hour and include a question and answer session. Audience members will be invited to approach two standing mics in both aisles. And we ask you to do this so that everyone in the auditorium can hear you and those who will be listening to our recorded podcasts on our website will be able to hear you. Following the program, please join us for a book signing with tonight's speakers whose books will be available for purchase in our museum store. We are so pleased to welcome Joseph Ellis, acclaimed author and historian. He recently retired his position at, as the Ford Foundation Professor of History at Mount Holyoke College, where he taught course, courses in American history since 1972. Joseph Ellis has also published over 10 books, including his book on Thomas Jefferson, American Sphinx, which won the National Book Award, as well as his book Founding Brothers, which won a Pulitzer Prize. Most recently, he wrote the quartet orchestrating the Second American Revolution, which you will hear about tonight. Our moderator for the evening is Stacy Schiff. In 2000, she received a Pulitzer Prize for her book Vera, Mrs. Vladimir Nabokov. She has also won several other literary awards, including George Washington Book Prize and the Ambassador Book Award for Great Improvisation, Franklin, France, and the Birth of America. Her most recent book, Cleopatra, was one of the New York Times 10 best books of 2012, as well as number one national bestseller. Ms. Schiff is currently working on a new book, The Witches, regarding 1692 Salem, and we are looking forward to having her return next winter. So if, if that one person, if you're here, sign up for our brochure, sign up to become a member and you'll get all that wonderful news. So before we begin, I just want to ask that you please turn off your cell phones, any electronic devices, and note that photography is not permitted except for our house photographer. And with that, now please join me in welcoming our wonderful guest tonight. Thank you. Good evening. Hi, Joe. Hey. Um, I think we should go on the road with this. I don't know. Let's see how this goes first. Um, this is a very radical book you've written. Um, you've reminded us here that um, the Continental Army waged a war for independence, not for 
union, that the idea of nationhood comes uh, later. Um, only in 1787 do we become one nation indivisible. So let's start at the beginning. We get a government that's a national government before really a nation. So let me backtrack a little bit. As you see it, the post-independence, pre-nationhood movement doesn't bubble up from the people. Yeah. It's imposed by a small group of collaborators working together. And you talk of their work as a brilliant rescue from the core ideals of the American Revolution. What do you mean by that? Oh, boy. Okay, let me start with something. Uh, no, it's all right. I can answer that. I mean, uh, that um, <clears throat> if you think about the argument that the colonists made to justify independence, the resolution on independence written by Robert Henry Lee, Richard Henry Lee, and, and voted on July 2nd, read, these colonies are and have every right to be independent states. That was the resolution for independence. We did not rebel against Britain as a nation. We rebelled as a series of independent states. And if you think about the arguments they'd been hurling at Parliament and the King since from 1765 to 1775, they're not arguments for nationhood. They're arguments for the sovereignty of their state legislatures. Parliament can't rule for us. Our state legislatures are the sovereign units. So that the most famous speech in American history has a mistake in the first clause. Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation. No, they didn't. But as you put it in the book, that wasn't a mistake. That was a purposeful propagandizing years later, right? I don't want to begrudge Lincoln for revising history since it's the only way in 1863 he can justify the Civil War. Because if he's wrong, and unfortunately he is wrong, um, the Confederacy has a legitimate argument in its right to secede because they secede as sovereign states, as a confederacy. And we really don't create a nation. We create a confederation. So they don't have the moral argument on their side, the South, but they have the constitutional argument on their side. We can forgive Lincoln for revising history since, in the end, unless you think it's a bad idea that the Union won the Civil War, uh, you want to grant him that. Um, but I'm making the point that in 1776, and then again at the end of the war in 81, when the treaty comes in 83, history is not moving towards nationhood. All the forces are centrifugal rather than centripetal. And so that history is moving towards the creation of a kind of Europeanization of North America. America is about to become some version of the EU. And Who's Greece? <laughs> Georgia. <laughs> <laughs> and so you have a group, you have essentially a group of collaborators who see this, yeah. and for their own, each of them for his own reasons, is urging essentially a reinterpretation of the American Revolution. Right. You have to change, according to the real ideological rationale for the rebellion, no nation state is possible. Because any powerful central government is far away from you and therefore doesn't represent your interest. If you're looking for the real seeds of the Tea Party, that's Which where it is. Which we've all actually been looking for. Yeah, I've been a member of the Tea Party for all these. And um, uh, that it's the notion, now in the revolutionary era, they're saying we're not represented in parliament, and they're not. But the anti-federalists are going to argue that any central government, even one in which we elect people, doesn't represent me. Patrick Henry is going to say in the Virginia Ratifying Convention, if, if there's a tax proposed and all the Virginia delegates vote against it and it passes, we're being taxed without our consent. Okay? Because the average American is born lives out his or her life, and dies within a 28-mile radius. They don't think, and they did, I know you don't believe this, but they didn't have iPhones. And, um, and they don't communicate with each other, and they don't think nationally. 
Um, they think locally. Um, and the political institutions reflect that. And therefore, in order for you to create a nation state with a Republican government, you're going to have to change your definition of what representation means. And it's going to have to be larger. And they just think if I'm represented by 30, if one representative in the House represents 30,000 people, which they did in 1788, that's not really representation. And um, so, some guy like Ted Cruz thinks, yeah, this, I get this, you know? And, um, uh, it's, it's a, and it's also a quasi-paranoid point of view, namely that any cluster of political power in a faraway place is almost inherently tyrannical. Well, you can't call it quasi-paranoid when you've just thrown off the yoke of the British sovereign, right? I mean, That's there's right. a reason for that. That's right. There's, it's it's well-reasoned paranoia. Absolutely. Right? The paranoia is heralded as truth. That's and patriotism at that point. That's right. That's um, right. Let me go back a half a step because you mentioned the word republic. Uh, the words republic and democracy have different meanings at this juncture, correct? Mm. Do we don't become a democracy. Okay, we become a republic. We are all so disillusioned already. Yes. <laughs> okay. Democracy in, in the 1770s and 80s is an epithet. It means mob rule. It means demagogic behavior. Um, we have yet to see the creation of the mythology of the common man. Uh, the Constitution is a pre-democratic document. It's not a democratic document. It's founded on, the, on a popular basis, yeah, popular opinion. But then popular opinion has to be filtered through several layers of deliberation. Because that's the difference between a democracy and a republic. Res publica, things of the public, right? You did Cleopatra. You must have read some Latin somewhere along the Yeah, there's a lot of democracy in there. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, like, the public is different from the people. The public is the long-term interest of the people, which at any given time, the majority of the people don't understand. Okay? The public interest in 2001 was, let's not get involved in a land war in the Middle East. Because that's not going to work, okay? And it's, it's like attacking Mexico after the, after the uh, attack on Pearl Harbor. But we're going to do it because it is so necessary to satisfy public, popular opinion. And so the, the founding generation is a pre-democratic generation. They're, they're a natural aristocracy. They're not what Jefferson called a tinseled aristocracy. Um, I mean, Hamilton is literally a bastard, and um, comes almost, he comes from further back even than Franklin does. And, um, uh, but w the American Republic is a republic. It's not a democracy, and we have to get over the assumption that democracy is always right, because it usually isn't. Which is something that... The, your foursome here clearly realize instinctively, mm. some of them because they've been reading through crates of books and others because it's instinctive. Mm. But I want to go to your title for one second because um, we are talking about the fabulous four as you've, you've, you've immortalized them. You mentioned that the late Pauline Meyer would have quibbled with your title. Yeah. And I want to join her in quibbling with your title. Uh-oh. Um, but, but what I really want to say is in the book you have this wonderful phrase, a bold and slightly illegal project. Yes. This is really like a conspiracy what these four men are doing. It right? is. I mean, it's... For a while, I had coup in there. Really? But, but coup is heard as coup d'etat, and if you keep looking it up, it often sounds... It, it implies violence. Plus, it's a foreign word, so you don't want to use yeah, that. It, yeah. If you, the original, is, it has to do with French... It's, what's the, it's in French. It's, it's, it's a blow. It's a, it's, uh, but it can be misunderstood. It is a bit of a conspiracy. Um, now, just make it, you said the fabulous four, okay? You know, like. Well, I was thinking superheroes. Super, I don't want them to be thought of as superheroes, okay. okay? I've spent 35 years of my life writing books about the founders, trying to say that they're flawed creatures, okay? They are not supermen, they are not divinely inspired. Tongues of fire did not appear over their heads at any time <laughs> during the Constitutional <laughs> Convention. Um, they are all people who have 
discernible weaknesses, and indeed, if they were really perfect, what in heaven's name would we study them for since we would have nothing to learn from, since all of us are imperfect creatures ourselves? Um, nor am I arguing these four guys did it all by themselves, okay? There are 55 people in the Constitutional Convention. There are 1,648 people that meet in ratifying conventions in 12 states in 1787-88. But this group of people did the following things. They instigated the calling of the Constitutional Convention. It wouldn't have happened without Hamilton doing it and Madison doing it. They recruited Washington. Without Washington, it's not going to work. Washington says almost nothing throughout the convention, but if he's not sitting there, this is an illegitimate thing. They set the agenda in the Virginia plan the first day of the convention, which is a radical agenda, and it's illegal because the mandate from the Confederation Congress is to revise the Articles. Not to write a new Constitution. Not to replace the Articles. And they want to replace them. And Washington has said to Madison, there's only one reason to try this. We go for the broke. We go for broke. Even if we fail, better to fail at, uh, at the right cause than to just do something that's not going to make any real difference. So talk about me being radical. He's radical in that regard. They then lose a lot of fights in the convention. And I'll, if you want me to, I'll explain why it's, it's almost structurally impossible for them not to lose. It, it, you could also say, I won't say it quite so boldly in any semi-public way, but what is said in the convention makes almost no difference. Because it's preordained. Yeah. The, the, basic, the basic compromises that come out of the convention are built into the interest groups there. There's three groups. Those that don't want to change anything, they boycott the convention. The people that went modest reform, and the people want radical change. There's got to be a compromise between these two groups. The second group controls all the small states. They can block anything. So the big compromise is going to be in July when they come up with representation by, by state in the Senate and by population in the House. Anyway, I don't want to get into the... One of the things that I disagree with, with um, Pauline Mayer, God rest her soul, is... Pauline wrote a wonderful book about the, about the ratification process. If you want to know what happened in every argument in western New Hampshire in August of 1788, and why some guy thinks we're going to secede and go with Vermont and that kind of thing, she has everything in there, okay? And I say the most important thing to notice about ratification after you've gone through all this, is that there's no pattern. The pattern is there's no pattern. Every state is different. Why is that? They do not know how to have a national conversation. They can't think nationally. They think locally. And those are the only arguments that make any difference to them. Okay? Um, now, Washington's thinking nationally. Madison's thinking nationally. Jay's thinking. Jay, by the way, is a guy, a New Yorker, whose stock is going to go up, not just because of me, but because his papers are coming out now. He's going to, if you want to go long on Jay, I'm telling you, <laughs> you're, you're going to... You know, when there's, this, when there's this surge of Jay biography in five years, it's going to be your fault. That's right. That's right. It might, one of them might be mine, too. Um, let's go back to what motivates these men. And I also want to ask you, do, does the reason that, these, that this particular group of people is thinking nationally have something to do with how young they are? Uh, partially. They are pretty young. The average age in, uh, and, and, and of all the people in the convention is 42. And but, since Franklin uh, it, it, was it, there, it mostly has to everything. do their, the biggest interest group in the convention is officers from the Continental Army. And then there's a group of other people that served in the Continental or Confederation Congress. Those are the people who have seen the problem of the revolution, the war, and the post-war from a larger level than the state or local level. And uh, that's the big thing that distinguishes them. 
if you do an analysis of a class analysis in a kind of Charles Beardian Marxist way, one of the things that shows up, it's really interesting, the actual people who oppose the Constitution are wealthier than the people who support it. Well, that's, that's an interesting point. There are three, it seems to me that you identify three things that really are motivating these men on a greater plane, when they're able to see above their local interests, and one of them is debt. Um, mm, and this yeah. was a number I loved. You mentioned the state of finances in the post-revolutionary years. In 1781, Congress asks for $3 million from the states. I love this number. And it gets $39,138 in revenue. So the states won't pay their tax bill. Right. What role... That's does, democracy. Right. But what role does that crippling debt play in what's about to happen? At the Big country? role. Big role. Because we have no credit. The American Republic is this great thing, Right. It's a banana republic. The European bankers regard us as a, a, a complete loss. You know, we're not worth investing in um, because we can't pay our we can't pay our debt. And we've got a forty million dollar debt increasing every year. It becomes seventy seven million by the time you get to seventeen eighty nine, um, and there's no way to pay it off because the states want to retire their debt, but they say. It's worse than that. Like, when the Continental Army, get this, this is really, this guy, Robert Morris, you ever hear of this guy, Robert Morris? He's a villain in a lot of, a, of, a lot of the books about, you know, he's the robber baron. It's a reading of the Gilded Age back into this, which is really silly. And um, this guy, Morris, is probably the wealthiest guy in America. And, um, and he becomes superintendent of finance. They call him the financier. And, like, when... A perfect storm of a benevolent sort happens, and the French fleet comes up from the Caribbean, and Cornwallis puts himself on the Tidewater Peninsula. We got him. He can, we can trap him. If we can get the Continental Army and the French Army down there, we can trap him, and that's Yorktown, right? We don't have the money to take the, troop, the troops down. Some of the troops under, uh, some of the generals are wearing loincloths, okay? They haven't been paid in two years. Morris says, what does it take to get them down? $687,000. He writes a personal check for $687,000. And that's how we win the Battle of Yorktown. The same thing happens when the Continental Army is about ready to be disbanded, they're promised pensions for five years, and there's no money to pay them. And so he says, I'm going to write a check that everybody gets 50 bucks. And so he writes a $500,000 check. And how does that follow through to what happens at the convention? Well, it's fairly clear that if we're going to be a viable republic, we have to have a federal government capable of managing the economy and taxing the states in ways that are not voluntary but obligatory. Who, and who's the mastermind behind that insight? Hamilton. Okay. And everything Hamilton does when he's Secretary of Treasury is exactly the same thing that Morris does, but Morris can't enforce it. The bank, assumption of the state debts, uh, the debt at par, everything that Morris, that, that Hamilton does is exactly what Morris would have, would have done. And had, and, and he says that. Hamilton says that. By the way, I am jealous as hell of Chernow because somebody made a play about Hamilton. <laughs> and you know, it's when apparently you, a great play. Great. You know, I can't it's get great. a ticket to the darn thing. But, um, but well, Maybe if you wrote your book about John Jay. Ah, yes, I see it now. Um, only because I know, only because I want to touch on the major issues that really bring the convention they really sort of undermine the convention, underground the convention. Right, let me say something about Jay, okay? Just, yeah, I don't know, it's Jay. your evening. Like, yeah. here's, it's August 3rd, 1782. Jay is in Paris, and he's in this room with this guy called Prince Orlando, after whom Orlando, Florida is named, who is a Spanish minister to the French government. There's a map on the table. They are beginning the negotiations for the Treaty of Paris, about which you actually know something, right? As opposed to most other things. That, well, yes. <laughs> and she wrote a book on Franklin. And, um, and so there's this map, and Orlando puts his finger on what is now Erie, Pennsylvania. And he draws a line down through Toledo, and it ends up in Tallahassee, Florida. 
and he says, everything east of that is yours, everything west of that is ours, Spain. Can I do the John Jay part now? Could do you the John? Go. Let me guess. All right. No, go ahead. No, you go ahead. Has you something can, to do see with see a, if you do it. He just do with points a, at one place. It has something to do with a river. Which yes. begins with an M. Yes, you got it's, it. It's so brilliant. I love this yes, moment. He points at the Mississippi, and he says, everything east of that is ours, and it's non-negotiable. And by the way, we're going to break uh, instructions from the Continental Congress, which require us to do everything in consult consultation with the French, because, <coughs> but because the French have a treaty with Spain, Spain we're going to sell the French out. We're going to sign our own treaty. He goes to Franklin's room. Franklin's got the gout. He's not able to walk. And, he, and Jay throws his pipe into Franklin's fireplace and says, thus do we break the resolutions. Adams comes down from, uh, from uh, the Netherlands where he's been negotiating with Dutch bankers. He says, great, I've been waiting to break these resolutions forever. And so they signed a separate treaty, and they sell out the French. And, uh, and we get the eastern third of the North American continent. And on such goodwill, our nation is founded. Indeed. Um, so <laughs> Since we're, um, since we're out west, let me, let me mention the second thing which comes into play in terms of the convention. Why, when given his choice, <clears throat> does George Washington, a man who seems utterly wise on every other count, prefer to visit Detroit than to go to Paris? Uh, it's a request from Lafayette. After the war, Lafayette says, you are the greatest hero of, of our time. Um, in part because you won the war, but mostly because you then stepped down. You're Cincinnatus. And I think you should take the grand tour. Paris, Vienna, Berlin. We're not going to visit London. Um, <laughs> and, and Washington says, now, let's go to Detroit, New Orleans, around the Savannah, and up into New England. That's the future. That's what's important. Europe is dead. Europe is the past. The future is out there in the woods that I used to know when I was a kid. But do you realize what a radical concept that is at yeah. that point? Yeah, yeah. And um, foreign policy is going to be not with Europe, but with Native Americans. But do they realize at this juncture that foreign policy is something the states are going to have to collectively face? This is one of the reasons why the the Fab Four, to use your, think that it's... It's the ones with the capes, right? <laughs> uh, no capes. That they think you need a federal government, not only to provide a coherent fiscal policy, but if you're going to manage an empire, you can't do it in a confederation. Because already Georgia is, for example, saying, um, there are all these treaties with the Creeks. We don't care about them. We want people to pursue their own happiness. Democracy, right? Democracy means we're going to steal all the land of the Indians. And uh, North Carolina is breaking all the treaties with the Cherokee, blah, 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 blah. And so treaties are worthless because each state says, by the way, Georgia thinks its border is Mississippi, is the Mississippi, okay? Virginia, guess what Virginia thinks its border is? Does it know where the Pacific is or not? No, it thinks it does. It says it's the Pacific. Because there's a map that they have that was written in the 17th century in, in the, the Pacific Ocean, which they call the South Sea, is only 200 miles west of the Alleghenies. Isn't that the Saul Steinberg cartoon? Yeah, that's time, it. Basically? Somebody stole that by the New York. Exactly. Yes. Um, let's talk about the elephant in the room at the convention for a minute. Um, uh, of the 55 delegates, if I don't ask you, someone else is going to ask you. So, Of the 55 delegates, um, 25 are slave owners. Might I have that right? I think that's There's right. also a slave in the room throughout the deliberations, correct? At, uh, Washington's Washington's slave is in yeah. the room. Billy. Um, Billy. There's yeah. also a delegate who owned 300 slaves but denounces the institution of slavery, right? George Mason. So, how, so what role does this play in terms of hmm. unifying or dividing these Divi men? It's divisive. Um, there are two ghosts at the banquet. One is talked about all the time and they are terrified of it, it's monarchy. Any robust expression of executive power is monarchical. Mm -hmm. And so if you try to figure out what the president can do by reading the Constitution, he can do almost nothing. Is that, and is that why, is that a direct Yeah, legacy? they have all this thing about how to elect them and they create this crazy thing called the Electoral College. Which I wanna ask you about. Yeah, and, but 
they don't want to talk about what he can do because that's bad. But the other thing... Do you think Obama knows that? <laughs> I think his use of executive power would be called tyrannical and monarchical. Yeah, and um, though I wouldn't agree with that. Uh, the other ghost at the banquet is slavery, which they can't mention. It is so divisive, it is so potentially explosive, that to raise it is to risk ending the convention. Not just because, there, there is a group of people, like Jay is the founder of the New, uh, New York Manumission Society, okay? Franklin wants to put an article in the Constitution saying that slavery should be put on the road to extinction. Governor Morris gives a really great speech against slavery saying that this is the form of feudalism that we're trying to get away from. Um, but South Carolina says, if you insist on putting slavery on the agenda, we walk. And Virginia probably walked too. Virginia likes to sound like they're against slavery, but they're not. They're against the slave trade. And then, so they want to see the slave trade ended because they're well stocked and that increases the value of the slaves they're going to sell to South Carolina. But they really don't want slavery itself to end. And in fact, slaves become their major cash crop after the convention. It's not tobacco anymore, and they can't grow cotton there, so it's slaves. They sell, there's about a million slaves sold from northern states into southern states over the, until the Civil War. Internal slave trade. So, if you teach this subject to a group of college students, I taught at your alma mater, I taught a course on, uh, that this came up, and this one very smart woman says, slavery is such a horrific, immoral, obvious wrong that no argument can be made to justify its extension or its preservation. And because the Constitution allows it to continue. Now, there's nothing in the Constitution that says slavery can continue. There's nothing in the Constitution that says slavery should be put on the road to extension. But there are certain things in there that obviously suggest that slavery is still part of the three-fifths clause, and there's also a compromise in which they're going to delay the ending of the slave trade for 20 years. The words they use, they can't use, Lincoln thought it was really important that they never mentioned the word slavery. Um, and the phrase is, that species of property. I got this theory, which I can't prove, that the way in which Madison writes, which is so, one of the reasons there's not a great biography of Madison, is that he's boring as hell. And that, <laughs> and his, 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 his writing reads like an insurance policy. <laughs> it's reason lawyers love him, you know? And, um, but there are circumlocutions. The sentence begins here, and you think, okay, and then it turns around to mean just the opposite. I think if you grow up in Virginia in the, late 18th, in the middle and late 18th century with slavery around you, you learn to think in elliptical ways. You, you, you learn to negotiate psychologically and in your vocabulary and your very syntax. You're compartmentalizing, as we would say today. Well, it's, but it's more fluid than that. It's a way of, it's a, your whole personality is shaped around um, evading confrontation on this issue. Um, anyway, that's what, the, that's what the, but back to the... So the strategic decision is to evade the issue. Yes. Let's find a way not to, it's a dinner party, please, let's not talk about this, okay? So the student says, I don't care what you say, Professor Ellis, but actually I do care because you're going to grade me in this course, but, <laughs> but I don't care because um, they were wrong and therefore slavery is a covenant with death and therefore nothing you can say about the founders and nothing you can say about the convention is going to get past that. To what I say, okay, if you want to argue that, you have to show me, let's all agree, this is a tragedy. 
Slavery is a tragedy. Is it a Greek tragedy or a Shakespearean tragedy? Okay. If it's a Greek tragedy, sic volvere parcos, tis the will of the gods. It's intractable. We're going to have to have the Civil War. Better to have it in 1861 than in 1788. Because there's less fragility to the government. Yeah, point. yeah. So it's kicking it down. And the South probably win. And, it, and, and is it, or is it Shakespearean, meaning there was a way to end it with the proper leadership? And the answer to that is, I don't see how it could. There's an economic answer. Mm -hmm. If you really say, we know this needs to be solved, and we don't, you know, we're going to call the bluff on South Carolina, okay? You think you're going to, you know, now that's dangerous because we know they're going to fire the first shot in 1861. Um, but say, we are going to commit ourselves to ending slavery gradually, not right away. We need to raise some money. How are we going to get that? Well, they don't know yet about the Louisiana Purchase, but that's going to happen in 1803. They're going to collect several hundred million dollars on the acreage that they paid $15 million for. Let's put some of that in a fund and pay off the planters gradually, okay? There's an economic answer to this, but there's no answer to the other question, and this is really embarrassing, but it's true. What happens to the slaves when they're free? If you look at the appendix of Uncle Tom's Cabin, Harriet Beecher Stowe, at the end of the book, says, now, here's where we're going to send them. Liberia, the Caribbean. If you listen to Lincoln up till 1864, he, he's, he sends a whole team down to Panama to investigate where we can send them. There is virtually nobody of significance in the United States who believes that blacks and whites can live together in the same society peacefully. Let's discuss another one of those um, intolerables, because you're in New York. I want to ask you about this. There's an, there's an epilogue to the ratification story and the idea that um, New York would secede from the Union, um, including Hamilton's threat that if New York secedes from the Union, then the New York City region will secede from New York, right? I love that one. Isn't that I, great? I think you know, I'm all I think, for that, I think, actually, should personally. we go to New Jersey or should we go to Connecticut? I you think know? a state unto ourselves. But do you want to talk about that? Because that's actually a wonderful... Um, yeah, it the New York Ratification Convention is dominated by the Anti-Federalists because George Clinton, the many-time elected governor, has a kingdom in New York that is his bailiwick. They're collecting tariff duties on imports from New Jersey, Rhode Island, for this for themselves, okay? They're not having to share this with anybody. They're also confiscating loyalist estates and that's a big source of revenue, even though it violates the Treaty of Paris, because the Treaty of Paris says you can't do that except to loyalists who bore arms against the rebellion. And most of the loyalists in New York just went away, back to England. And then they want to come back and get their houses back, but they're not going to get them. Anyway, two, uh, three, it's a three-to-one majority in the convention. There's no way, argument makes no difference. So Jay and Hamilton are both arguing against this in the New York Convention know that they can't win. Their strategy becomes delay. Wait till Virginia votes, and if Virginia goes for, that's the ninth state. They have decided nine states puts it in operation. Another illegality, by the way because it's supposed to be a unanimous vote. But we know it's never going to be unanimous because of that state called Rhode Island. Richard, this is like the biggest con in American history. <laughs> it is a con, it is but a it's, con, a, it's right? a good con. This is like a perfect, benevolent perfect storm. Yeah, it's like Ocean's Eleven, except there are only four. <laughs> I, sh I should have thought of that, yes. <laughs> um, I don't want to run out of time before we talk about the Bill of Rights. Uh, um, the Bill of Rights comes uh, later. Um, it's like the spoonful of sugar to make the medicine go down to some yes. extent, right? It's, it's, Madison doesn't think it's some sort of marvelous Magna Carta thing. He doesn't think you need a Bill of Rights. 
He spends the whole ratification process, including its several contributions in the Federalist Papers, saying only monarchies need bills of rights. And what's the, what's the objection? What's, what do you what's mean? His object why, why does he think this is... Well, be he, because everybody in the conventions is saying, why didn't you do a bill of rights? And he realizes that a lot of their objections would have been answered if they did a bill of rights. And so if the question is, why didn't they do a Bill of Rights in Philadelphia? The answer is because they were tired and they wanted to go home. Okay. And, um, and there wasn't, and George Mason said, look, all we, got, we can do this in half a day. We stick around for half a day. And then they spent half a day and they said, oh, well, it's going to take longer than half a day. And so we're going home. And Madison made all these arguments during, and, you know, like we don't, and by the way, if you put together a Bill of Rights and you list all the rights, suppose you miss some. Mm -hmm. and you leave some out. Then that's going to be flawed. But after ratification, there's a movement for a second convention in New York and Virginia. This is a way to upset everything. Six states have, have, made, have, have ratified with recommendations. The recommendations are allowed to be only suggestive, not mandatory. That's another thing that Madison does to con. This is a con. I mean, how does he get the authority to do this? He simply says, all recommend all amendments must be mere recommendations. If they are mandatory, you have not ratified. It's an up or down vote. Yes, no to the Constitution. Yes, we have it. No, we go back to the Articles. There's no middle position. The, removing the middle is a big strategic move because that's where most people really are. That's where they would like to go. And he eliminates that. And, but after the convention, after the ratification happens, now in order to woo these people back into the national government, and you know, some of these people in Virginia and Massachusetts really are good folks, and we want let's let's do a Bill of Rights. Okay? So it's like a delayed peace offering of some It is. Kind, That's right? exactly I mean, what it is. It's, it's yeah. A, yeah. And when he first writes it, he thinks it should be inserted in the document. He's trying to corkscrew these things, and he has a devil. Where the hell does this one go? And where does that one go? And then somebody tells him. You can't do that because the people signed this document without those insertions. And therefore, it can't be inserted that way. It has to be listed as a codicil at the end. And everybody now thinks of it as the great, you know, great epilogue. Of, and it wouldn't have been that if Madison had gotten his way. I spent some time, because I have a sort of, um, what's the word, obsession with the ridiculous of the doctrine. And there's a former student of mine who's thought a hell of a lot about this, Michael Neff, um, uh, of, of, what do you call it, uh, original intent. Mm -hmm. Especially on the Second Amendment. The Second... Well, that's the amendment we talk about more than any other today, right? Well, we have because of the, the Heller versus the D.C. decision, or D.C. versus Heller, whatever it was, and uh, 2008, I think. Is that right, 2008? And, um, and the decision is written by Scalia, or his clerks, and it's like 32 pages long, the, the one that I got, single-spaced, and it claims to be the poster child for original intent. The original intent of the framers was in the Second Amendment was to guarantee a person's right to bear arms. How did he write the, how did he write the Second Amendment? He did it the way he wrote all the amendments. He said he gathered all the recommended amendments. There are 132 of them. Right? And he says, okay, where do people recommend? Now, a lot of states recommend that taxes will be voluntary. He deep sixes that. We're not going to talk about that. Does anybody say we worried about our right to bear arms? Four states say we're worried about a standing army. We're worried that the defense of the republic will be in the hands of a professional standing army, and we want it to be in the hands of a militia under the control of the state. That's what the Second Amendment is all about. It has nothing, so that the right to bear arms is a derivative right, not a natural right, and the decision by Scalia is a preposterous thing. 
I mean, I mean, there's a former student of mine, Michael Neff, who went to Harvard Law School and wrote all about this stuff too. And um, uh, and what I don't like, Michael, is that among the legal profession, which you are now a member of, they talk about original intent as if it's a serious theory. They talk about it like it should be taken as a plausible way of understanding things. It is total crap. <laughs> it is an, it is a man, you, it is an, it is created to, for the sole purpose of destroying starry decisis on crucial decisions. Now they're never going to overthrow Brown versus Board of Education, but there's, you know, they're going to go after other things. And you know, Citizens United is probably the worst decision since Dred Scott. And um, uh, and and the only thing that all the framers agreed upon with regard to original intent is that they didn't want their views to be preserved as original intent. Okay? They all said that. Well, you have a wonderful line where you say that the Constitution was intended less to resolve arguments than to make arguments itself the solution. That's make right. Arguments themselves the solution. So it's That's very Madisonian, yeah. It's a document of intentional ambiguity and The Constitution is an inherently living document. Which we have utterly forgotten. Many of us have utterly forgotten. Yeah, well, there's four people on the court that think this way. Before we get too political, um, yes. I think we should. Turn you can things see the Republicans are not inviting where, me to I the convention. I can see where you're going with this. <laughs> In order to keep Joe out of trouble, let's turn over. Let's turn questions over to the audience. Um, we'd love you if you would approach the two mics on the side. Um, I think we'd all be grateful if we get questions rather than answers, or if we leave the answers anyway to Professor Ellis. And, um, you can ask Kurt, too. She can know And if you could be brief, that would be lovely. And we'd love to know your names um, as well. And I think we'll start on this side. I'm Jim Pasinich. I'm a docent here. Professor Ellis, Alexander Hamilton's role, particularly in breaking down the idea of 13 colonies and melding it into a country, giving the federal government much more power than, than certainly any of the founding fathers wanted. Can you talk a little bit about that and creating a bank that paid off that enormous debt that we had? Eventually does, yeah. Well, one of the reasons that Hamilton, Hamilton serves in the Continental Army and he sees the, the problems. Hamilton and Washington both said, if the, if the Continental Congress had been able to give us what we needed in terms of men and money, we would have ended the war in two years. We want 80,000 troops. We never got more than 15,000. Demographically, we could have fielded an army of 200,000. You know, there's the population sustained that. But the states wouldn't do it. So he comes from that experience. In addition, think about this. Hamilton doesn't have state allegiance because he's an immigrant. He, he's, he's an American. He's not a New Yorker or anything. He eventually becomes a New Yorker, but like he doesn't have the problem that, say, Madison has. Madison really stays a Virginian in many respects. And um, so Madison, uh, Hamilton is also the most audacious. Um, I know uh, uh, Obama used the word audacity of hope, but um, Hamilton is like the guy that would get the highest score on the LSATs. <laughs> and then would challenge everybody that the LSTs were worthless ways of measuring anything. And, <laughs> that's, um, that's why we like it. Yeah. Exactly. And he is the most smart, the smartest guy, but he's the most dangerous guy. If you leave him alone, he has totalitarian instincts. Um, and we don't want that. And when, when Washington retires, that. that's what happens. Uh, Andrew, I very much enjoyed your books. Uh, thank you. A uh, question I have is that with respect to the uh, necessity of a Bill of Rights, I've recently read that some have posited that because of the institutional limitations that the original Constitution imposed on the federal government, that that's why a Bill of Rights really wasn't necessary, and that ultimately those structural protections ultimately protect freedom and better than any Bill of Rights could. And I was wondering how the various founders uh, came down on that issue with respect to the necessity of a Bill of Rights. Madison agrees with you. He thought that the, that the protection of rights would occur within the structure of the Constitution, not with the bill. And he thought that, he, Jefferson disagrees with him fundamentally on this score, that he thought that the real threat to rights would come from below, from, from the people, rather than from above the government. Jefferson completely disagrees with him. They're really at different planets on that right now. 
Madison's motive for putting the, the Bill of Rights in are totally political. Um, Jefferson cares not at all about the Constitution. The only thing he cares about is the Bill of Rights. I mean, he doesn't care about what government can do. He thinks government ought to change every 19 or 20 years anyway. And that, but he cares what government cannot do. And that's what the Bill of Rights will protect, will, will, will assure. Sir. Good evening, Professor Ellis, Dan Harrison. Uh, you have not mentioned, uh, perhaps by design, the Supreme Court. And I am curious. Well, I have mentioned some of the justices. Yeah. <laughs> He's only you, mentioned you, them you, by you, name. You, <laughs> you, you mentioned uh, Citizens United, but uh, you didn't say the court. But anyway, um, to what degree did the so-called Fab Four, or even aside from the Fab Four, uh, the founders have the prescience to see that eventually questions of federalism and questions of states' rights and what have you would have to be decided in the ideal sense by the high court, even before Marbury, even before landmark decisions, which um, define the Supreme Court's power to a great degree. Did they see that the Supreme Court would eventually be a key element of the new uh, country? You can detect glimpses of that in Hamilton Federalist 46 or something like that. Um, but if you read the Constitution, you can on the judiciary. The one thing that you can say for sure is they don't want the Supreme Court to be supreme. They don't envision, if they had envisioned Marbury versus Madison, which by the way doesn't really make a difference, the big decision that is that does this is Dred Scott, uh, 1857. But they would conceive of a Supreme Court that is the ultimate arbiter of the Constitution as the ultimate source of tyranny and fear. Madison, later in his career in 1828 to 32, during the nullification crisis, makes sounds that suggest that he thinks that, that that's the proper place to ultimately resolve issues peacefully. Um, but in 1787-88, the notion that the Supreme Court would serve that kind of crucial function is inadmissible in the political culture that exists. Thank you. Hi, Professor Ellis. Uh, great to have you here. Um, I read somewhere a long time ago that the French paid the salaries of the Americans at Yorktown. Any truth to that? Uh, no, Robert Morris paid the salaries, but the French, the French, the French troops won the Battle of Yorktown. The, the French had engineers. We don't have any engineers. And they won the battle. And Washington was only titular commander. Now, would we have won the war without the French? Yeah, but it would have taken a lot longer. Um, by the way, the French bankrupted themselves in supporting us uh, in money and troops, the cost of troops. And that you can say the French Revolution is, 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 is in part a function of the debt that they have accrued that forces the king to call the estates general, and when they call the estates general, all hell breaks loose in France. So that the French Revolution is in some sense caused by the debt that the French have incurred at our expense. And it's one of the reasons why Franklin, for, for a very long time, resists the notion that we're going to sign a separate treaty without the French. He really thinks that our, you know, we owe so much to them. Um, but... Um, uh, paying the salary there now. Hi, my name is Greg Wilker. Um, obviously, like Madison was close with Jay in, in Washington, Hamilton during the Constitutional Convention, but then he becomes uh, part of the Democratic Republicans yeah. later on. Is there an don't event? Don't call him a Democratic Republican. Oh, they don't call him that. They, the, it's in the textbooks. It's wrong. Right. It's Republican. Republican. They don't call him Democratic Republicans until late 1816. Is there a reason why he joins the Republicans and not the Federalists? Yeah, there are people that disagree about this. And um, um, the one answer is Jefferson comes back from Paris and becomes Secretary of State. He lands, and Madison bows down to his great idol and changes his mind about everything. <laughs> and goes from a, the most 
ultra-nationalist who wants a federal veto... I have to admire that, though. I mean, there's an extraordinary <laughs> flexibility there. <laughs> it takes a woman to be able to see this as a noble thing. And, um, <laughs> but he actually starts his conversion before Jefferson. He's, he has to run for office in um, Virginia, and they've gerrymandered the district, so he has, he's really... It's going to be tough, and he's running against Monroe, what is one of his buddies. And in the campaign, he has to promise things that will get elected, like... Um, I'm not going to allow them to assume the state debts and we're not going to have a national bank. So part of it is he comes into contact with his constituents in a way. Um, but the degree to which Madison switches in the 90s, 1790s, is it's, it's 180 degrees. He goes from the ultimate defender of federal sovereignty to, in the Virginia Resolutions, writing what later Calhoun will say is the defense of states' rights that the Confederacy in 1861 is going to go with. By that time, he says, no, no, that's not what I meant. And um, um, Madison is a bit of a guy that, what, he's a kind of political man who, he thinks like a lawyer. Even though he wasn't trained as a lawyer, he says, who is my client? You tell me who my client is, and I can prepare the arguments to support him and attack his enemies. But somebody's got to give him the client. Jefferson gives him his client. And, uh, and then he, and that's what he does. He's like a hired mind. And... Um, <laughs> um, Underneath it is a realization that with the Hamilton program, the merc mercantile north is going to dominate the agrarian south. And all these people in the, that are contributing to the bank and everything, and the Virginians don't think about money. They think about land. And, it, land is, and they don't understand. Accounting is wizardry to them. That's the reason they all go broke. <laughs> And, um, um, but beneath it all is if you let the federal government say that it has control of domestic policy, guess what? That's the end of slavery. And we can't talk about that. Hi, I'm Jen Steenshorn. I'm a editor, one of the editors of the Selected Papers of John Jay. So we're oh! Yay! Um, Thank you. We... Um, you had mentioned the importance of internal foreign affairs, foreign relations with the Native American nations. Um, could you say a little bit more about Jay's experience as Minister for Foreign Affairs during the 1780s and how that kind of developed his feelings about? You're absolutely right. That's, that's right. He comes back from France, or actually Madrid, I think, and, um, and they immediately elect him uh, head of the equivalent Secretary of Trade, Superintendent of Finance for the Confederation Congress. Not only do they want him to do it, he says, I don't really think that I can do it if we have to go to wherever the capital is at that time. Is it Annapolis or is it Trenton or someplace? And so he, they say, we'll move the capital to New York. <laughs> so that's how the capital moves to New York. And, uh, and he is superintendent of, uh, uh, of um, foreign affairs and is frustrated enormously by the fact that each state seems to have its own definition of proper foreign policy. There is also a crisis that happens called the Mississippi question. Spain says, um, we want to close the Mississippi, and in return for that, we'll have most favored nation trade with, the, with you. And he says, okay, that's probably a good deal because the demographic wave's not going to hit the Mississippi for another 30 years. So we can make a deal. We're not going to be out there. And then by the time we get out there, they're not going to be able to stop us anyway. We're going to just take over. And um, so, yeah, we'll make this deal. But a lot of states, especially the southern states, oppose that. They, they see this. It, it will affect the, the land buyer's assessment of the value of land in the West. If we don't control the Mississippi completely now, maybe it's not going to be a good investment. Maybe other countries like Spain will come in and take over. So it's a big fight. And he basically finesses it, and he's defeated, but he promises the, uh, the uh, Spanish minister that, well, you know all this, that I'm trying to tell them, 
that, okay, we're not going to go to war about this, and, uh, and, uh, and let's just, let's just, but he sees that no, no republic can conduct foreign policy with the structure of the government as it is. And it's, and Jay is remarkably serene about things. He's just, you know, like, it's like, of course, that's obvious, and of course we have to change it, and of course it's going to happen, and just in the same way we won the revolution, this is going to happen, and, and it's like, do you realize this is not, you know, this is going to be hard, and this is, and he never loses faith. Remember he, that this is the man who cooled his heels at the court of Madrid for three years without anyone even inviting him to dinner, so there is, there is a serenity there. There is. Okay, you know more about that side than I do. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you. This was fabulous. Thank you, Jeff. Joe, Joseph Ellis, and Stacey Schiff, thank you so much. It was a great night. Please join them, everyone, for the book signing. Thank you all for coming. You thank you all for being such great members, and we'll see you again. Good night.